The Guardian. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Tom Clark. As we speak, a tented village is still occupying part of London's financial district. The protesters against economic injustice have spread from Wall Street to cities around the world, including outside St Paul's Cathedral. Idealistic, passionate and peaceful, their demands so far seem disparate. We're here indefinite until we actually people engage with us. We are going to stay here um, as a visual reminder to everyone of, of the injustice which the 99% of the population is suffering from due to the concentration of the wealth in the hands of the few. Some of them have things that are fairly pertinent to say, some of them don't. Some of them have an agenda that I don't think is very pertinent, but it's all good and healthy. At the heart of all this debate is the unjustness of a failed institution being supported by the taxpayer. That's the heart of the debate. We want to see a change to the tax system. We want to see fairness and equality around the world. We're getting the logistics in place in order to, to expand the camp and to be able to, to have the infrastructure in place to sit and be sustainable in our own uh, in, a, in a community, essentially. This is corporatism. These are the people I'm fighting against. I've just got a feel of something that's going to be here for a while and hopefully make make a difference, get people thinking. If you look at previous demonstrations, like say Iraq or something like that, um, there's a big show, of, um, big show of, of, of people that came out and then they went home and that was it. I think some of the strength of the Occupy Wall Street stuff is that it's just gone on and on and on. Well, as ever with protests, there are always critics who are quick to point out that there isn't a coherent policy platform there. But if you listen through some of the voices we heard there and also that slogan, we are the other 99%, there is one strong theme, which is that wealth and income have got too skewed into the hands of a wealthy minority. And what's more is that that message seems to be penetrating with an editorial of all places in the Financial Times this week, which said it had heard a wake up call for a reduction of high inequality. Now, one man who's made a whole academic career out of studying the gap between the rich and the poor and its different dimensions over space and across time is Professor Daniel Dawling of the University of Sheffield, who joins me now. I mean, for a social geographer, the idea of a tented village in the middle of a city is pretty interesting in itself. But do you think they're on to something? Do you think they've chosen a moment that the data in your book would suggest is a right moment for having an attack on inequality? You'd hope it's the right moment. In terms of, of the... 99%. When I began work in the late 1980s, uh, the richest 1% in Britain had about 18% of all spare wealth. That's, that's wealth that isn't your pension or, or your main residence. And currently, it looks as if the richest 1% have just over half of all the spare wealth in Britain. That is not main residence and pension. The other 99% of us has less than half. Um, it's a historic high. I, I don't think it's actually been as uneven as this before. So I'd hope they've picked the right time in that I'd hope we're not going to become more unequal because we've never been this unequal in terms of who's got all the money. I mean, in your book, you produce some startling charts and you cover areas like murder as well as more familiar things like employment and educational opportunity and so on. 
And you say all of these things can be related back one way or another to economic inequality. But if you write, as I sometimes have done, about issues Hello, of relative Hello, this is the business poverty, podcast. I'm Tom Clark. As we speak, and the rest of village is still on the Guardian's website. London's always hit district by a large number of protesters against economic injustice. Real spreads from Wall Street to cities around the world, not having enough outside to keep warm or to keep idealistic, passionate, and peaceful. Their demands so far. Seem disparate. Adam Smith, who's normally a hero of the right, wrote a very long time ago about how a man, a working man, needed a pair of shoes that he could wear, that he could hold his head up high, and he needed a linen shirt that, that you know, he had self-respect about. And Adam Smith explained a long time ago that there are levels above subsistence that people need for basic decency. Most people now get this, but there are a, a vicious minority who would who would say... You really ought to just have enough money to be able to avoid starvation, but anything else is excess. And they have a problem, this small minority of people. We should learn how to deal with them rather than treating them very seriously anymore. Okay, well, another argument that's often made is that we shouldn't worry so much about the spread of incomes as such, but to use the language that... Gordon Brown, Nick Clegg and David Cameron have all used, we should be worrying more about social mobility. What would you say to that argument? This is the kind of thing that was said in, in the very early 1920s about, you know, don't worry about how much income the rich have got before the crash of 1929. Uh, you learn to worry about the spread of, of income, uh, particularly when you have austerity and, and overall incomes are going down, then it becomes acutely you know, it becomes an acute problem that a few people have an enormous amount of income when, when there is less. The argument of social mobility is the argument that it's fine to have these huge income inequalities as long as a tiny number of people win X factor and get, and get a high income themselves. <laughs> the problem with social mobility is it can't make you all rich. You can only have a tiny number of rich people. Uh, richness, by definition, is having a lot more than others. So you cannot all be rich. You can all be happy. You can all have enough. Um, I'm, I'm not arguing here for perfect equality. Mm. We're one of the most unequal of the richest countries in the world. I think it's only realistic for Britain to say, could we be like the average OECD country when it comes to inequality, uh, which is benevolence. So I'm not, I'm not here arguing for some kind of utopia. I'm arguing for a realisation that along with all those people protesting and so on, there is something acutely wrong going on. And having a system which gives over half of the spare wealth to just 1%, where 99% of people are losing out, is only sustainable if human beings are very, very stupid. I mean, that's a powerful moral argument, or it strike many listeners as being a powerful moral argument. Do you think there's a link between the sort of boom and bust that we've had on the, on, on the one hand and the spread of incomes on the other? Do you think the concentration of incomes in a small number of hands might make the economy more prone to boom and bust? I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, you see these graphs of, of boom and bust and crashes, and, and they're worrying because over the course of decades and decades, they do appear to be rising. So I think it's, it's separate. What I would say is that it's much easier to become more unequal during a boom because as you're making more money, say from a banking sector doing very well in the late 80s and 90s, a little bit of that extra money can trickle down um, through tax revenue out, say, of London. And so it's easier when you've got a boom and money is being made from other countries for inequalities within a country like Britain to rise. But the year that that stops, it becomes very hard to tell people that you've got to live with these great inequalities when you're not even offering them a trickle-down 
of, of wealth from a few of the people who've become very wealthy. Many of the protesters clearly feel, and I'm, I'm interested in this phrase, the other 99%, that there's always been, you know, people have always said that there are poor people and they don't have a fair crack of the whip. But with this idea of the other 99%, do you think that something's changing around middle Britain and that they're feeling squeezed at the expense of the rich? Well, what you've got to realise is that middle Britain is the best off tenth. That's what people mean by middle Britain. So okay. if you take taxpayers... The bottom 90% of taxpayers have an income of around about 16,000 a year. That's 90%. And they are called Lower Britain, even though they are 90%. If you take the next 10%, but ignore the top 1%, their average income is £50,000. So the, the 99% of us are those of us earning around about 50000 and those earning around sixteen, And we're beginning to work out we're all in it together. Above that group, the top 1%, they're equally divided. Uh, nine out of ten of the top 1% have an income of about £150,000, so they're just touching that new higher tax rate. Um, but they look up at the top 1,000 of the population um, who have much, much more than them. <laughs> so uh, we're all Middle Britain now. <laughs> well, Middle Britain is all about the top 10%, but nine out of the t- ten of the top 10% are beginning to struggle. And, of course, they also look at their children and... You know, work out what are their children's chances of getting inside this tenth, and also how good is it to being inside the tenth when all that happens is you end up spending huge amounts of money on a mortgage so you don't have to live near the other 90% of people. I mean, there is a gross stupidity to living in a country that's becoming more and more unequal because you end up spending a lot of your, your money just trying to live away from some of the people who've become poorer because of the, the greater inequality. So you, you go to private schools because you're scared of state schools. You only live in certain parts of London because you, you get scared of other parts of London. You know, you get yourself a second house and that means there's less room for everybody else. And it, it's, it carries on becoming inefficient. There's an enormous inefficiency in, in economics to becoming more unequal. Um, one thing you say in the book is that the idea of William Beveridge's great um, five evils of ignorance and want and so on have been replaced by new evils. Elitism, exclusion, prejudice, greed and despair. Could you just explain for us a bit about why you think the evil giants have moved on since the 40s? These are all, I think... Uh, the arguments which underpin the idea that it's okay for the top 1% to get richer and richer. So the the kind of prejudice argument says uh, that you just can't have lots of people working. We have to have a million young people under 25 working because they're not not up to it. They don't have the skills, even though they include a huge number of graduates. Uh, In fact, our wage bill's never been higher. We have enough money to employ um, everybody. But the prejudiced idea is that there are a few people who are so clever that you need to give them really high salaries. And the problem of giving a few people much higher salaries than we ever used to do is you're not left with enough money in your organisation to employ more people on more even salaries. The, the, the problem of greed is the idea that greed has become okay. It, it's often said at the back of books and in reports that we need the greedy. If we don't have the greedy, the whole country won't work. Um, what I've done is to take a lot of examples of people quietly saying these things and saying there is a rationale being presented as to why it's okay for the richest 1% to get more and more and more. It's not completely by accident, and you have to recognise this rationale and then confront it and just say, this has become stupid. I mean, it's got beyond the kind... I honestly don't... I find it very hard to have a very rational debate with people who want to argue for greater inequality 
because I think they're almost beginning to argue for two different species of human beings, a tiny <laughs> proportion of, of winners and then a kind of mass serfdom of the other 99%. Can you give us some examples of some um, areas of public policy or of business life where people are making those kind of arguments? It's quite a general idea you're putting forward there. The, well, if you take public policy, if you take the 20 to 1 uh, income ratio that was suggested for the public sector, that is that the idea that that wasn't actually implemented by the Hutton Report because you have to pay some people in the public sector apparently more than the Prime Minister to get them to do work because, you know, because they're worth it or they'll, they'll be stolen um, by, by the private sector, rather than saying you should have people who feel honoured to have top positions in the public sector. And the idea that you have to pay them more than the Prime Minister it just shouldn't, shouldn't be possible. But the promise is permeated into our thinking that there are only a few very good people and so you have to have very high salaries to get them. We've had startling inflation figures um, this week, you know, up to, um, on the real uh, inflation measure, up to 5.6%, whereas given the scale of the recession, unemployment is relatively low. And what I'm getting at here is, do you think that there's a sense that this recession might be shared, the pain might be actually getting shared a bit more f- widely it may, it may be not to the top one percent but to the to the great bulk of the rest of society and is there is there an opportunity there well in, inflation can share things a bit more because it reduces the, the, the money that savers have and savers tend to be better better off but you know what i would say is the unemployment official unemployment rate is artificially low uh, the lower you make unemployment benefits and the unemployment benefits now are much lower than they were relatively to the 80s yeah um the more to what force, people could earn. I mean, it's yeah. a big so people decline. Will, yeah, because unemployment is so low, because job seekers' allowance is only £9 a day, people will do almost anything now if, if they can get a job. The kind of really degrading kind of work, I mean, including work that's illegal. Um, so your unemployment rate is partly a reflection of how, not generous, because, you know, £65 a week is not generous, but how punitive your benefits are. So one reason why the United States traditionally had a relatively low unemployment rate is that you couldn't live off the benefits. Uh, in fact, you couldn't live off one job often, so people would have two or three jobs in the States. You can get unemployment down to zero simply by reducing unemployment benefits to zero. Uh, people then start you know, going over rubbish tips to find scraps. And it's, it's quite important to realise that the unemployment rate tells you two things. One is it tells you how many jobs are out there, and the second thing, it tells you how desperate people are to find food. For everybody when you have growing inequality, it's as if you're looking, you're on a ladder and above you the rungs are moving away and the people above you are moving away. You look down and it's moving away down so you get more and more scared of falling. And then at the same time, with austerity and with the country becoming poorer, that whole ladder's moving downwards even as it becomes stretched out. And it's a frightening position for everybody along the ladder and I think it helps enormously to try to put yourself in the shoes of people at different positions in the ladder. And then you can see how people can use fear to, to make people behave in antisocial ways but because the gaps between them are separating, because in normal circumstances solidarity is lower when you're more unequal because you, you've got less in common with other people because you, you don't mix as much. So um, your book is something I think you've said uh, of an autopsy on, um, on, on new labour. I mean, it's called fair play, and the, the Tony Blair argument was always, you know, <laughs> no special deals, but a fair deal for everyone kind of thing. That was his shtick. How do you think they got on? How did they get on? In, in hindsight, they were up against some pretty powerful forces that they and many other people didn't recognise, in that the trend was, was upwards 
and the trend upwards was disguised partly because the early 90s recession and John Major's government didn't see huge rises in inequality. So when they came into power in 1997, they had great aspirations to you know, reduce inequalities in health, reduce inequalities in wealth, wealth and income, mm. and they failed on those three. And do you think they did have those aspirations? Do you? I mean, I, I seem to remember them sounding a bit, ooh, we're more equal opti- equality of opportunity than equality of outcome, or do you think that was still the aim, really? Oh, we- well, the, the aim was on health, certainly greater equality. Even Margaret Thatcher believed that she would achieve greater equality of health. No, but nobody says... I want those people living to 90 to be able to live to 100, but I don't care about the people who are living to 60. Not yeah. a single... Yeah. I've yet to meet the completely psychotic politician who says that. But I've got a horrible feeling one, one day I will. So the inequality in, the, in health is, is the biggest one that is, is most regretted. Now, a number of months ago, I think you did a, a, a whistle-top stop tour of Britain, didn't you, and spoke to different young people um do, i mean do you do you sense you clearly say there's been these big changes in the past in political attitudes to um economic inequality in, in the 30s again maybe in the 70s are we on the cusp of a new one? Oh, I, th- I think we are not for the group i mean i was actually going and talking in schools where i've been invited so i was sort of being fairly careful and you know not from 16 17 year olds um in fact they're very very raw about their sort of feelings and they often reflect their parents i think but from people a bit older uh, particularly people around about 24 25 when they've assumed that everything will work out for them those who've done well and you know got into college got a degree a lot of them are beginning to work out that they're silly to blame themselves and it wasn't their fault they were born 24 years ago and are beginning to look at the at what's not logical about what they're being asked to do because even if they win they become a winner they're being asked to enter a system and take part in a system which is working to this benefit of people whereas what's normal in places like japan or most of mainland europe is to be all in it a bit more together and to really be in it not to be pretending you care about other people but actually actually to to care and see other people as more like you i think it's becoming starkly obvious to, to people now in a way it wasn't obvious when the country was booming economically and everybody could have a few more toys at christmas and we could not you know be concerned ourselves so much that some people's toys are much bigger than other people's toys. Well, I think there with um, Danny Dawling unexpectedly citing the words of George Osborne about us all being in this together, um, we'll draw this to a close. So thank you very much, Danny. His new book, Fair Play, is published by The Policy Press and very ranging and interesting and rich with data to back all the points he was making in that podcast. It is too. That's all for this week. There's plenty more on the Occupy Wall Street protest and also on those in our own city on our website at guardian.co.uk forward slash business. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Tom Clark and thanks very much for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.